I'm Ray. And you also know me. And I'm Gage. And you are listening to Gore Report, a true crime podcast. That was nice. It was nice. I kind of <laughs> liked it. I kind of liked it. We always dip our toes in the wonderful waters of weird around here. <laughs> so, and the water is always warm. <laughs> the water is indeed always warm and always weird. I never get sick of it. We also hope that you're having a good day and a good week. And, and a, a good, good life. life. We will always be wishing you that happy and safe existence. And of course, you know that we love you. And we care for you. As, as long, long as, as you, you consent, consent to, to it. Because consent is important. And we don't care if you're tired of hearing it. <laughs> so this is also kind of cool. We're uploading on a Sunday today. That's kind of that's kind of neat. Yeah. I kind of like this. So Hello. Everyone on Sunday. (laughs) I did want to give a quick little shout out to my aunt. Well, she hates that I call her my aunt, but my aunt Natalie. Oh. Yes. You will never believe what I got in the package the other day. What? Well, here, check this out. They are little Gore Report keychains. Oh, my goodness. They are so cute. Aren't they? I love them. (laughs) She actually made keychains for us with our logo on them. Yes. Thank you so much, Ray's Aunt Natalie. That is awesome. I Give me one. (laughs) Yes, thank you. Thank you. I love it. I love it. Yes, you're going to keep this one and I'm going to keep the other one. I am okay with that. Genuinely, this is awesome. Thank you very much, Natalie. They're beautifully made. I'll have to put a picture up on Instagram so you guys can see it. Yes, definitely. Okay. Honestly... We don't really have an incredible amount of stuff to unpack at the beginning of this. I know we have a good bit of information to get through. You left me on a fucking cliffhanger four days ago. I'm ready to hear the rest of this case, so I say we just jump right in. Yeah. So, to briefly recap what we discussed in part one, Dorothea was born in Redlands, California, and right out the gate, she had a very difficult and sad childhood. She endured the neglect and abuse at home only to be orphaned and abused again at an orphanage until she was picked up by relatives. Dorothea was a pathological liar, telling her clients she was a lot older than what she was. Her relationships never lasted long, and she would end up in and out of prison for crimes she would commit, including fraud, drugging and stealing from people, prostitution, and running a brothel. Dorothea ended up running a boarding house for the second time in violation of her parole. Here, she would befriend and go into business with Ruth Monroe. However, time passed and so did Ruth. Ruth died under suspicious circumstances while living under the same roof as Dorothea. Her death was ruled a suicide. Proceedings against Dorothea were already in motion in 1982 when she drugged and robbed two people. This was all the proof Ruth's kids needed to validate their claims that Dorothea poisoned their mother. Picking up where we left off, Dorothea was sentenced to five years in prison for drugging and robbing two people, Malcolm McKenzie and Dorothy Osborne, on two separate occasions. There were at least three more people who came forward about their experiences with Dorothea, but they were unwilling or unable to physically appear in court to testify. While in prison, Dorothea just seemed to be having a good time. She was popular with other female inmates and shared a lot of interesting stories about her life. But as we know from part one, she was a pathological liar. The women in prison knew a completely different version of Dorothea. I can only speculate some of the tall tales she had these women believing... There's no telling. I know. Like, especially the Rita Hayworth lie. Like, that really got me. Or her, what was it? Her sister was the ambassador of Sweden. Yeah. Like, crazy shit. Right. 
So according to the inmates, they knew her as a lawyer, a doctor, a former actress. She had them believing she had been out and about with many famous people and even had an affair with foreign royalty. Wow, Dorothea. I mean, she's just living life inside her head, isn't she? Living life. So I gather she would probably sit with someone, have this conversation about her life. Then when someone else sits with her to talk to her, she probably told them something completely different. Right, right. But while in prison, Dorothea formed a relationship with a pen pal named Everson Gilmuth, a 77-year-old retiree whose wife had recently passed away. Dorothea was hesitant at first, but eventually a conversation came up where he was getting paid pension checks every month. Oh, no. She changed her mind. Ah, Their relationship had developed romantically after that. So, like, once she knew that he was getting the bag, that was it. She was just all over it at that point. I mean, what was that little saxophone noise that we had in that one episode? (laughs) Again, we said this in part one. We in no way just made saxophone noises, but the (laughs) the intention was a saxophone. Right. I promise it was. Dorothea only served three years out of her five-year sentence. Before she could leave, she had to undergo another psychiatric evaluation. She had a few of these before, as I covered in part one. The first evaluation, she was diagnosed as a pathological liar. And the second evaluation, she was diagnosed unspecified schizophrenic. But this evaluation... The psychiatrist picked up on a lot of behaviors that would coincide with the diagnosis of psychosis... They didn't think it was psychosis just yet, but they had stated that Dorothea tended to disassociate from her crimes and that she needed to be constantly monitored to see if this would eventually develop into actual psychosis. So they didn't diagnose her with it just yet, but they were suspecting psychosis could be the ailment. They were taking note that she was showing particular signs. Yeah, they were happy just staying with the unspecified schizophrenia for now. Gotcha, gotcha. They did say that she wouldn't be working in any type of healthcare jobs or caregiver jobs, and she should never be allowed to be in a position where she is looking after vulnerable people because that dynamic is dangerous when you're dealing with an unspecified schizophrenic person. Like, if they are in total management or control or care of your life, it can become very volatile. Yeah, especially if said schizophrenia isn't checked right because again you know to you listening definitely not painting the image and feeding into this negative stereotype that people with schizophrenia are horrendously out of their mind and don't know what they're doing it's not like that but the point being made that hers wasn't checked she had a whole bunch of shit going on outside of that and you know that's more so the point I guess you're making. I just yeah. wanted to But you to also state have that. to take into account that this happened back in the 1980s. There was no talks about mental illness at all. Yeah, it was a very different time. It was a crazy time to be alive. <laughs> <laughs> so, so they wanted her to have regular evaluations going forward to keep an eye on these psychosis symptoms. When she was released in 1985, Everson was sitting outside waiting for her in a red 1980 Ford pickup truck. The back of the truck was filled with everything he owned because he grabbed his belongings and left behind his kids from his previous marriage. What? I'm gathering his kids were like adults considering his age. Like I said, he was 77. He left behind everything in Oregon so he could start this new chapter of his life with Dorothea in California. With Dorothea Puente. With Dorothea fucking Puente. Whoa, boy, he fucked up. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> That's messed up. <laughs> it's so bad. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. But, I mean, you're not wrong. That's what I'm saying. Like, that, you the way... You were thinking it. Yeah, but I said it. <laughs> the way that just made my stomach just lawn chair. Yeah. Truly. <laughs> like, oh, God. So as they were headed toward what would be their new home together, back to the Orderica house where Dorothea was staying before she went to prison, Everson proposed to Dorothea. Dorothea was out on parole, but the parole meetings were basically non-existent. Wow. She didn't have a single evaluation after she left prison. It's just wild. Suddenly in September of 1985, Everson stopped replying to his family's letters. 
He had a whole life back in Oregon, and he left to be with an ex-convict, and his family had voiced their concerns to him before he left to live with Dorothea. They told him, like, hey, you don't know this woman. She's drugged and robbed people before. Are you sure you want to do this? Like, are you sure? Like, are you (laughs) sure you want to do this? (laughs) Right. So as soon as he stopped replying, their minds went to the worst place imaginable, obviously, and they contacted police in Sacramento to go check on him. Wow. So the police stopped by 1426 F Street to do a welfare check on Everson and found he was fine. He was perfectly happy and just living his best life. And... Now he was angry at his family for getting involved. He's angry at his family because they give a shit about him? Wow. I don't know. (laughs) I mean, maybe that's a very narrow thing to point out at this point in the story. It's just, wow. Well, maybe, I mean, I guess I could see from his side where he would obviously be very upset if your family knew that you were dating an ex-convict and they had a history of drugging and robbing people you know, of course they're going to be like, hey, are you sure you want to do this? But in his mind, he's like, I'm so sick of y'all using her past against her. That kind of thing. And it can cause animosity. I mean, I get that. I get that. It's just, I guess it's just one of those things in the bigger scope of context with how this story goes. It's just like, wow, how fucking unfortunate. (laughs) (laughs) My God, my God. He was so furious, he cut contact with his family, and he stopped sending letters, and after the one phone call to let them know that he was angry, he never called them again. Holy shit. Dorothea did, however, write to his family quite frequently to let them know what he was up to, how he was doing physically, what hobbies he was getting into. She said that he started doing wood sculptures in the yard. Okay. She also told them in her letters to never get the police involved again because it was against both of their wishes. So it just seemed like they wanted a quiet life together to be happy, be away from any past legal stuff and not want her past to influence what people thought about her and you know like i said a few minutes ago i think that's what fueled him getting upset gotcha i just i don't you know this i don't like it the vibe's not likable it damn sure isn't (laughs) so at this point the orderica family moved out of their house at 1426 and moved into another home renting the house to dorothea So Everson and Dorothea had the ground floor and second floor to themselves, and they were renting out the basement. Dorothea decided she wanted to turn the house into a boarding house, despite her parole. She had to hide it from her parole officer, but she never really saw him. Like I said, the checkups were non-existent. She maybe saw her PO three to four times after being released from prison. So insane, the background that this lady has criminally, and they just let her go? Didn't check up on her? Didn't keep tabs on her? Just left her to her own devices, and it's just... Wow. She started taking on only a few boarders at once because I'm sure she wanted to stay under the radar, but it did eventually grow. Two months after Everson's family called the police, Everson wrote a letter to his family. Uh Uh-huh. Which surprised them because they didn't think they were ever going to hear from him again. In the letter, he told his family that the wedding to Dorothea was off and that he was packing up his things and he was going to move south and he'd contact them when he got settled. But this wasn't true. Dorothea and Everson were still happily living together at 1426 F Street. Dorothea had actually wrote the letter. Wow, Dorothea. Before Christmas in 1985, the Ordericas were leaving for Mexico. But just before they left, they stopped by to check on their tenants. Ricardo Orderica went out into the yard to speak with Everson. Ricardo noticed that Everson was looking extremely tired and unwell. He just looked very run down and not himself. Oh, God. Yeah. When they returned from Mexico, the Ordericas went to their rental properties to check on their tenants again. This time, Everson was gone. Oh, my goodness. Dorothea told them they split up, that he had moved out and went to live somewhere else. Dorothea, playing the part of Simba, because we know she's fucking lying. <laughs> you did not just go there. I did. I was just about to say, though, Why that's... Why the fuck you lying? 
Why you always lying? <laughs> I was just about to say, though, like, hmm, Dorothea, that's really convenient that he moves away and breaks up with you and yada yada, and his family just happens to get a letter from him, but it's really from you stating the same thing. It's like, I don't like it. I don't like it. It makes me uncomfortable, yeah. Uncomfortable, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Dorothea had murdered her fiancé, Everson Gilmuth. It's unclear how he died, whether she was slowly poisoning him until his body contained so much drugs that he'd eventually overdose, or she drugged him and then suffocated him to death. Oh, I'm squidward and considering how the first part of this story went, I think it's safe to say that she probably fucking poisoned him. <laughs> I agree with you, Squidward, but that 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 could just be us. We're not making this a thing. <laughs> you can't stop it. You can't stop it. None of you can. I'm just kidding. I love Squidward. Oh, I love you too. Shut up. <laughs> She would then drag his body into what is known as the death room and leave his corpse there until she could decide what she wanted to do to dispose of his body. The death room, Jesus yeah. Christ. Yeah, we're gonna get we're gonna get into the death room in a little bit. But a few days passed and he had remained in that room on the floor. Oh Dorothea couldn't really think of a way to dispose of him without raising suspicions. And she knew that when he started to decompose, his body would let off a really foul odor. She began to get desperate at this point and began to wonder if she couldn't just ask someone to help her and dispose of the body for her. She couldn't find someone corrupt enough to keep this a secret. Remember when I said she was renting out the basement to a tenant? Yes. Well, she came up with an idea of asking her tenant's boyfriend. Wow, that sounds like a brilliant, (laughs) great idea. I know, right? (laughs) What in the fuck? His name was Jesus. Dorothea caught up with Jesus outside and asked him to come inside for a moment. As soon as he stepped into the door, he got smacked in the face with this odor. She told him that one of her tenants died of a heart attack, and since this tenant had no family members, she had no one to relieve her of the body. So she was just left with this body on her floor and needed help removing it out of the home. Jesus got so freaked out and refused to move the body. I fucking bet, like, you just got asked randomly, like, uh, hey, buddy, can you, uh, come in here and help me move a fucking dead body? Like, who wouldn't wig out in that situation? Jesus, I do not blame you. Right. Dorothea could tell that he was freaked out. Full of suspicion. And soon, she too got freaked out. Oh, no. <laughs> and told him to forget the whole thing. Just forget it. Just what? Never, never mind that I asked you that. Oh, dude, sorry. I'll, I I'll just, get help somewhere else. I just asked you to move a fucking dead body out of my house. But, oh, I said that you're freaked <laughs> out, and now I'm freaking out. So, you know what? Just fuck it. Forget forget you ever heard any of this. It's fine. Right. It's literally fine. That's exactly how she did. She said, that's fine. I'll get help somewhere else. Jesus Christ. (laughs) She also requested that he not go to the police about it because she knew she wasn't supposed to be running a boarding house. Or having dead bodies in her house. Right. Both of these things are just, you know what, Dorothea? Dorothea, I give you a ribbon for being bold. (laughs) Bitch, you are bold. Uh, Harry Potter and the audacity of this bitch. (laughs) I'm telling you... But if the police found out she had a dead body in her house, whether she was running a boarding house or not, she would still go to prison. Either way. Right, right, right. So they agreed between the two of them not to tell anyone about this and to never talk about it ever again. Holy shit. In November of 1985, Puente hired Ismael Flores to install some wood paneling in her apartment. She somehow convinced Ismael to buy a truck off of her, a red 1980 Ford pickup truck (gasps) in good condition. No. Which she stated belonged to her boyfriend who took a trip to Los Angeles and he wanted it sold by the time he got back or something to that effect. Holy fuck. She sold the truck to Ismael for $800. 
He had no clue this was the truck that belonged to Everson. Dorothea then asked Ismail if he was any good at building. There was one more thing she wanted him to do. Build a box. Six feet long by three feet wide by two feet. Oh, God. Sound familiar? Oh, God. She claimed she needed this box to store books and other items. Oh, God. My soul is dropping out of my ass. <laughs> Without <laughs> any questions. Poof. Poof. Exactly. Woof. <laughs> Without any questions, he built the box. She had asked him to keep the lid off of it so she could fill it, and then she would figure out what to do with it from there. So she asked him if he'd come back in a few days to help her transport the filled box to a storage depot because she was thinking about moving, and oh. he agreed. Oh, Dorothea, Dorothea, you are bold, bitch. Very bold. So a few days later, they loaded up the filled and nailed shut box, and Dorothea joined him on the ride. She obviously wanted to make sure the box wasn't opened. On the way, however, she told him to stop while they were on Garden Highway in Sutter County and dump the box on the riverbank in an unofficial household dumping site. That is a leap and a jump from the storage depot. Puzzled, Ismail questioned why, but Dorothea told him that she changed her mind about wanting to take it to the storage depot. And the contents of the box were just junk to her anyway. Oh my god. The two of them took this heavy coffin-like box out of the back of the truck, and the box was then left on the riverbank. On January 1st, 1986, a man was walking down the bank to find a good fishing spot. He spotted the box instead, sitting about three feet from the river. And as he approached the box... He got suspicious. Already suspicious of it from the shape alone. But the smell was so strong and so pungent, he immediately informed police. Investigators found a badly decomposed and unidentifiable body of an elderly man inside. They tried to do an autopsy, but nothing came of it. The only thing they got from his body was an approximation on his age. That's it. Wow, that is... It's wild. It really was just a different time back then. Yeah. Yeah, because this is, let's see, back in 1986, so... It's about 40 years ago. Yeah. All the cool advances we have in technology now when it comes to body identification and forensics, like, they didn't have all of that. Or at least not to the level we have it today, for sure. You know, they asked for information and leads and piece things together, but nothing came forward at all. Meanwhile... The government is still believing he's alive because his pension checks were still being cashed. Dorothea was collecting his pension checks every month, and she still wrote letters to his family telling them about all these exciting trips they've gone on and things were going great, then explaining that the reason he had not contacted them because he was ill, any of her physical friends, she would just tell them that Everson had moved away after they split up, and the last she heard of him was he was doing fine. His death didn't impact Dorothea at all. In fact, she was just carrying on as if everything was normal. In fact, better than normal. So she had this entire house to herself. She started up her room and board business, taking in 40 new tenants, most of whom were alcoholics and drug addicts. She could only fit eight people at a time, giving them their own bedroom. She was no longer doing the thing in the old boarding house where she had, like, the hospital ward thing in her basement. Yeah. She would only house clients with their own bedroom now. She would do everything for her tenants. She'd cook, she'd clean, wash their clothes, make sure they were presentable, give them haircuts, dispense their medications. Like, she had a very mixed reputation amongst her boarders. Some of them thought she was a saint, and others hated Dorothea. Wow, interesting. Those people that hated Dorothea, they were only there because their families put them there. Or there was some circumstance where that was the only place they had to go. Gotcha, gotcha. Some reports claim she would yell at the alcoholic tenants and even become abusive to them. 
She had absolutely no patience for alcoholics that were staying with her. Being around alcoholics was probably pretty triggering for her. Yeah, I was just about to say that I can really see to where this could be a a bit of projection of some unhealed trauma. I'm not saying that it makes it right, but... Of course not. I definitely see to where alcoholics or, you know, that kind of stimuli would be very not good for her. Right, because as I said in part one, her parents were both alcoholics and very abusive. Right. So the tenants who had learning disabilities or mental issues or anything else disability-wise that they couldn't control... She was an absolute saint to these people. Gotcha. But the alcoholics just seemed to set her off, which was interesting, considering she herself was an alcoholic. That part, though. I was also going to bring up that part. She'd give up drinking for a time and then end up drinking again and off again and on and so on and so on. Just kind of went back and forth. Like, you're drinking. How are you mad at these people for drinking? Right, right. Oh, well, I'm squirming, and that doesn't do any fucking good to be a hypocrite, Northam. <laughs> Nobody likes that. <laughs> Again, you make a valid point, Squidward. Nobody <laughs> likes a hypocrite. Not at all. People continued to go to her boarding house or continued to bring their family members to the boarding house for a reason. She seemed to work wonders for her tenants. She'd feed them, clean them up, she'd buy them new clothes, make sure they're just well taken care of. And she seemed to know a lot about the benefit systems run by the government. She always seemed to be able to get more money for her tenants by knowing exactly what to say or file on their benefits application. The kicker is, Dorothea would keep that extra money to herself. As I stated in part one, she did it then and she did it this time too where she was just taking their entire check taking how much she was going to take from it and then give them what little was left. There were some tenants whose families were very involved. They wouldn't have the checks signed over to Dorothea, and she couldn't force them to do that. So even though the checks would still be in the tenant's name, she would intercept these checks at the mailbox and cash the check. Holy shit. Then give what little was left to the tenant. So even when it was coming to the house in the tenant's name, she was still getting these checks cashed and keeping her pockets lined. My God. Oh, it's a lot. (laughs) It definitely is. Once a tenant started to get worse and she had no more patience for them or she just wanted to open up a bed at the boarding house, she would murder her tenants. She would particularly do this when the family started asking questions about finances. Why did the checks need to be in Dorothea's name? How much was she getting every month? How much was their family member getting every month? Money was Dorothea's only motivator. Perpetually, the tenants squandered what little money they had at the nearest bar and were picked up by police and jailed for 30 days following anonymous tips. Oh, fuck. Puente then pocketed the rest of the tenants' money while they were in jail, and I bet you can figure out who left the tip to the police. My God, that is fucked. In 1987, an 80-year-old woman named Betty Palmer joined the boarding house. Starting out, she was full of life. She was very eccentric kind of woman who was always in good spirits, a great sense of humor, flirting with doctors and tenants, and just... Being a fun little old lady. She sounds like a very vibrant soul. Right. I love it. I I love it. I aspire to be like that when I get older. (laughs) Right, right. Same, same. Within just a couple of weeks, Betty lost what made her Betty. She began to retreat to her bedroom a lot because she was always tired. She was always ill. And her health just continued to decline. Just seemingly out of nowhere, right? Much like Ruth Monroe. Oh, God, this is horrible. Betty was only at the boarding house for a month, and then she suddenly disappeared. A month? A month. Dorothy had told all the other tenants that her daughter had come and picked her up since she wasn't doing so great, which we know to be untrue. Dorothea had killed Betty Palmer. Of course, the actual way she killed them had yet to be identified. I suspect at this point she was probably murdering them the same way that she killed Ruth and Everson. Just slowly 
poisoning them over time. Right. Considering the way Ruth had died by getting sicker over time, it makes sense that she was probably poisoning these people over time until they eventually die from it. Could you imagine the pain and suffering of being slowly poisoned to death? Absolutely not. It gives me chills, like, to be honest. I, I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. I couldn't imagine it. Now, this is where the case gets its notoriety. It's how she disposed of her victims' bodies. For the time being, she took Betty Palmer's body to the death room, which was an empty room in the boarding house where she would take the bodies after she killed them, but before she could figure out how to dispose of them. She had to do this on her own. She couldn't ask anyone for help. And this is where Dorothea got the idea to bury the bodies in the yard. This body would be the first of many bodies that she would assign this fate to. Come there to live, only to get your money stolen from you, and slowly you're being poisoned up until you die an agonizing death. To have your body taken into an empty room of the house where you sit for hours, maybe even days, on a wooden floor. Then she dug this hole for you and dumps you in a ready-made grave in the back in front of this woman's yard. And the rest of your possessions are now hers. My God. Now, Dorothea knew that if this body was ever found and identified, it would tell them who the body was, and it would ultimately get linked to her. So she began to remove identifying body parts. One night down in the death room, she cut off the hands, the feet, and the head of Betty Palmer. Jesus Christ. Like so it's bad. Not only is she doing all of this other crazy shit, stealing from these people, drugging these people, killing these people, but good God, the cherry on the fucking cake, she's dismembering them too. Well, Betty Palmer is the only one that I know of that she actually dismembered fully like that. But still, like, yeah, this is rough shit. She left Betty's remains still wearing the nightgown that she was killed in. Ugh. Then she wrapped her body in more cloth, maybe a sheet or a blanket, and wrapped Betty's body up to kind of conceal everything. And then in the middle of the night, she went out and drugged the body down the stairs into the front yard, which was a very small front yard, by the way. Oh, uh, I couldn't imagine the sound that that made. Sources say that the other tenants in the house could hear things going on in the house, but no one ever stopped to think she was poisoning people and burying them in her yard. So no one in the house ever checked the loud noises. They all kept to themselves. Yeah. Remember when I said she told the tenants that Betty's daughter came and picked Betty up? Right. Well, the tenants believed that to be true until Betty's daughter showed up looking for her mother. And, of course, Betty wasn't there. Dorothea was not at the house when the daughter came, but the tenants talked with the daughter briefly before she left. And when Dorothea returned home, the tenants were asking her what happened to Betty. Dorothea explained that she had to take Betty to a nursing home, and she was so embarrassed that she couldn't take care of Betty around the clock like she needed to, so that's why she didn't tell anybody. Bullshit, Dorothea. Right. Dorothea's next victim was James Gallup, a 62-year-old alcoholic she met at a bar one night. She realized he was an alcoholic and noticed that he was having some issues taking care of himself, but when he mentioned that he was receiving checks from the government, now Dorothea was interested in him, and she invited him to stay at her boarding house. James thought this was a really great idea. She was offering to take care of him, and he had so many issues on top of being an alcoholic, he could really use the help. This is so sad. There was only one problem. James didn't want to sign his checks over to Dorothea. He felt that he didn't need any help with his finances and he could handle his own money more efficiently. Right. So what did she do when people didn't want to sign over their checks? She intercepted them at the mailbox. Oh my God. So she would figure out a way to get your money away from you. Like mm. she would figure it out. She was going to do it either way. Right. James had a brain tumor and ended up eventually needing surgery not long after staying at the boarding house. And once he got out of the hospital, the doctors put Dorothea in charge of his medication. She then began giving him larger and larger doses and more frequently throughout the day as well. And he ended up getting drowsy and kind of ill, 
but he just figured it was after effects from the surgery. Suddenly, James Gallup was no longer there. Dorothea claimed he'd gotten drunk, packed up all his things, and just left, when in actuality she took him to the death room and began making her preparations to dispose of him. This time she had left his limbs intact. Unlike Betty Palmer, she wrapped him up in plastic and cloth and buried him in the backyard. Dorothea started to sit back and think on how she could possibly be tracked to this body. She remembered his brain tumor. And when you have a brain tumor, you must have regular checkups. And she was worried that when he started to miss his appointments, that the doctors are going to get the police involved. So, before they could even have the chance to miss him, she called his doctors and told them that James was no longer in her care. So she covered her ass immediately. Immediately. She claimed he had left the boarding house and she had no idea where he'd gone. But then she said something that was really weird. She said, he's probably going to see different doctors wherever he's at, so you don't have to worry about him. Why would she? Well, I know why, obviously, but like, why volunteer that, Dorothea? The doctors immediately thought this was bullshit. They have a lot of suspicion. Back Uh, at it again with all this suspicion. (laughs) So they thought it was very strange that Dorothea would have gotten in contact with them. Why didn't James contact them? This doctor investigated James Gallup's medical history. He found a pharmacist had filled a prescription for a sleeping medication called Dalmain. Or is it Dalmain? I think it's Dalmain. Little did the doctor know, while that prescription was being filled, James was already long since dead. Dorothea Puente was stockpiling his medication. And this ended up being her weapon of choice. Dalmain was a sedative, and when consumed, it would stay in the body for long periods of time. So if someone like Dorothea Puente was giving you these pills regularly and frequently to keep you down, to keep you drowsy and sleepy, she would be overdosing you at the exact same time because this drug would build up in your system until you ultimately overdose and die from taking them. Oh my. So not only did Dorothea Puente have a prescription for this drug, she would also tell tenants to get this drug from their doctors because it was a good drug to have if you couldn't sleep. And in reality, she just wanted to fill all of this and stockpile it. So she exactly. So she would start stealing it from the tenants. Son of a bitch. She found her weapon of choice and she wanted to stick with it. So I do want to mention that from here on going forward. Dorothea Puente's M.O. did not change. She was continuing to use the same drug to slowly poison people to death. As I move through the rest of her victims, it will be a very short description on what made that victim different. So Faye Martin, 64 years old, after moving into Dorothea's boarding house, she had a lot of physical ailments that Dorothea just could not keep up with, as Vera was more in need of proper round-the-clock care. So her solution was not to send her to a nursing home or anywhere she could get proper help. Her solution was murder. Of course, she let Vera stay alive long enough to get the check signed over to herself before disappearing. Vera was only there for a week before she miraculously disappeared. A week. A week. Seven fucking days and then she was gone. Right. And it's unclear what Dorothea's excuse was to her tenants for this one. One detail about Vera's death stood out from the others, however. Police believe she may have been buried alive, evident by the apparent claw marks in the dirt surrounding her. Oh my god, that's nightmare fuel. Like, genuinely, I know there's, like, a lot of you listening that probably can agree with me or relate with me in some way, but out of all the ways to die, being buried alive is one that truly just scares the shit out of me like truly it does honestly if i was ever in that situation and i knew i couldn't get out of it i would just go to sleep i don't even i would rather like just suffocate in my sleep like just be asleep and die i would (laughs) i would not be able to do it i would not like good god i would not that is i mean i would still fight my way to try to get out of it with everything i had in me but if that didn't work out i would just good night 
<laughs> I, I love everybody. I don't know how I got in this situation, but I am going to tell you that I am going to go out on my own fucking terms. I will go out going to sleep. Me and sleep have a very special relationship, and I will not give it up for nobody. The eternal nap. To the death of me. <laughs> Jesus. But that is that is so awful, though. I could not imagine... Now I'm going to talk about Benjamin Fink, and he was a 55-year-old alcoholic. So, Ben, he was there the longest. He lived there for a year, and Dorothea kept him around for that long. I wonder if he had, like, a greater amount on his checks or something to warrant her keeping him around that long, but... I guess we won't know, unfortunately. Yeah, that's it's just speculation, but... He was last seen in April 1987 before disappearing. And before his disappearance, there was this one night in one of the communal rooms during dinner. Ben was getting rowdy because he was drunk and he was getting very loud and very aggressive. And you could see the visible displeasure in Dorothea's face. She grabbed him up and went to take him upstairs and actually told another tenant she was going to quote unquote make him feel better. Oh, fuck. The next morning, he was gone. She told the other tenants that he was too drunk, and they got into an argument, and he left. Ben's body would later be unearthed from behind Dorothea's house, wearing nothing but a pair of boxers. Jesus. This time, there were traces of florazepam found in his body. It seemed like Dorothea found a new drug to use to poison her victims. But this time, it did seem like she used the drug and strangle method because he was too violent and too drunk. So you would think she'd need to carry this murder out much quicker than slowly poisoning him to death. Around this time in the case, the tenants of 1426 F Street and their neighbors were noticing a very strong odor coming from certain rooms in the house. It was so bad they couldn't even turn the air conditioning on because the stench would just become much stronger. Oh, God. One source claims the neighbors even commented that the smell from next door was so strong they had to keep all their windows closed and they couldn't really use their air conditioning without circulating the smell through their own house. Oh my god, that's awful. It's bad. And we're talking about, like, you can't use your AC in a California summer? Right. Oh my god. God, I couldn't, I couldn't even imagine what that shit smelled like, honestly. Dorothea told everyone in the house that she had just put fresh fertilizer in the backyard and the smell would go away in a few days. But let me guess, it did it. But the smell from the death room was from numerous bodies being laid upon the wooden floor, decomposing. And because the room was on a higher level, the ceiling of the room underneath it was permeating that smell throughout the house. Son of a bitch. So bad, the neighbors couldn't even, like, could you imagine? No, I could not. So now we're going to talk about Dorothy Miller. She was a 64-year-old tenant of Dorothea's when she vanished in October of 1987. Like her other victims, Dorothy died at the hands of drug overdosing. Big surprise there. When her body was discovered, Miller's arms were found duct taped to her chest. Her body was badly decomposed by the time it was excavated from Dorothea's backyard. They managed to find traces of florazepam found in her remains, just like Ben Fink. And after her death, Dorothea used her veteran ID card to obtain medical care. The next victim is Leona Carpenter. 78 years old. She was released into Dorothea's care in 1987 after she was discharged from the hospital. She had been under Dorothea's care before in the previous boarding house she ran. And Leona was one of Dorothea's favorites. She never questioned Dorothea, so, you know, she liked having her around. <laughs> I bet. After a year or two at the boarding house, again, Leona became too hard for Dorothea to care for. After two weeks of pain and suffering on Dorothea's sofa, Leona was never seen again. She died of a drug overdose, like all the others. Although those who knew her claimed she was far too ill to have acquired the drugs that were found in her system on her own. 
She was buried along the back fence of Dorothea's yard, and she was discovered by her femur bone found in the backyard. Oh, my God. The last of her victims was Alvaro Bert Montoya. He was 51 years old. He had learning difficulties, and he also had schizophrenia. He came with his family to the States from Costa Rica, and he was diagnosed with schizophrenia at the age of 16. His parents tried to help him by putting him in a mental institution. There, he received a lot of shock therapy, which is just... That is so fucking barbaric. It's violent. My God, that breaks my heart. He left home and ended up in Sacramento, California. He didn't tell his family where he was going. He eventually ended up being sent to a place called Detox. And even though he wasn't an alcoholic, he still went there. Wow, okay. Here's where I will introduce you to Judy. She was a retired social worker for Volunteers of America. And back then, there was a huge homelessness task force that was set up by the governor, I believe. And this was to target homelessness to get these people some help because there was so many people who were homeless in larger cities. So Judy met Bert while he was homeless and she sought out Dorothea to see if it would be a good place for Bert because she had heard good things about Dorothea. Right. So there's these videos. Um, if you watch Netflix's Worst Roommate Ever the Dorothea Puente episode, they actually show video clips of Bert, like, as Judy is talking to him to try to, like, where do you want to live? Do you like this area? Do you like a different area? You know, they're trying to figure out where he would want to be placed. And, you know, he would obviously have to enjoy where he lived. Of course, of course. And I'm sure she wanted to help him after finding out all this stuff about his family and, you know, having schizophrenia and being homeless. That is not easy. Yeah, I mean, Judy clearly grew attached to him. Right. They definitely had a connection. So let me remind you that even though all these killings were taking place... Dorothea was a very loved and respected person of her community. Yeah, no one had any fucking idea. She had established herself as a genuine resource to the community to aid alcoholics, homeless people, and mentally ill people. She established herself as a respected member in Sacramento's Hispanic community as well. She was funding charities, scholarships, and radio programs. She was genuinely loved by her community, like genuinely loved again no one had any Any idea that she was fucking killing people and putting them in her backyard right she would cook food and feed people with free food like wednesdays and thursday nights was burrito night oh gotcha gotcha. which sounds nice but like not from your house lady you know (laughs) good lord Say with me, you Katie at everybody's house. You just can't. You just can't. (laughs) I'm crying. I'm fucking crying. So she would donate clothing, like bags of clothing to charities. But little did people know the clothes she was donating was what was left over of her victim's possessions. Oh my God. She would even donate money to the local politicians' campaigns. Like... She was in there. These people thought she was a saint. Little did they know. Little did they know. The following information, the following story, I should say, is Judy's story. And I got it all from um, the interview that she did with Netflix. And Judy states that upon her first meeting with Dorothea, she was very impressed with her. She remembered that Dorothea had a small box of baby kittens and would often feed them and love on them in front of her. So Judy thought that Dorothea was just an all-around good person when... In reality, she's a fucking psychopath of the highest caliber. So when Judy went to inquire about Bert staying there, Dorothea told Judy that she was, and I quote, independently rich and just loved helping people, end quote. Bullshit. During the walkthrough of Dorothea's home, Judy ran into a man named John Sharp. This was a man she knew for quite some time, and they caught up for a moment, and then she continued to look at the rest of the house. For Bert to live there, he had to get started on social security checks with no connection to his family, 
Dorothea stepped forward as his payee, and he was eventually moved into her home. Oh my god, my stomach. Bert had his own room, his own bathroom, his own TV, and even his own recliner. And Judy would check up on him often to make sure things were going well. After some time, Dorothea answered the phone. Like, Judy called, and Dorothea answered the phone and told Judy that Bert had gone on a trip with her brother to Mexico. What? There had been some sort of fiesta and that he would be back. And Judy immediately recognized that something was wrong. She was like, that's not like Bert at all. She just knew. And Dorothea said, oh, you know, he'll be back maybe, say, Friday. Then when Judy called again, it was another excuse. Don't worry about it. He'll be back next week. Oh, my God. And at this point, Judy told Dorothea, if I don't hear from Bert by Monday, I'm going to call the police and tell them there's a missing person here. I mean, good job, Judy, but right. still, my God. So Monday morning, Judy gets into the office to work, and she gets a strange phone call from a man who said his name was Don Anthony, and he was living there at 1426 F Street. He called to tell her that Bert was no longer at the house, he had come home from Mexico, but then his family came and picked him up, and Judy didn't believe a fucking word. I bet I wouldn't either. That's... Suspicious. Suspicious as fuck. Judy then knew where she could get in contact with John Sharp. She asked him what had been going on in the house, and this is the conversation that transpired between them. So Judy goes, have you seen Bert? No, he's not here anymore. Did you go to Mexico? None of us went to Mexico. Oh, God. She then asks him, so tell me about where you live. Like, is something wrong? And he immediately, without skipping a beat, said, yeah, something's wrong. Ooh. She's been digging a lot of holes. Oh, God. So now, with Bert missing, she went to file a missing persons report with the police. She just had this gut feeling that something was going on in the house, and she couldn't get what John Sharp said out of her head. Mr. Cabrera showed up at 1426 F Street to file a missing persons report. They spoke to Dorothea and spoke to everyone in the house, and they all said the same thing. Bert had left with a relative. But John Sharp slipped the officer a note that read, She wants me to lie to you. God, the goosebumps. He would tell the police that he didn't know what happened to Bert, but he knew that whatever Dorothea was wanting them to say to the police wasn't true at all. Dorothea told John, I quote, John, I'm going to ask you to lie for me today. I think I'm going to jail. The police are coming out, and I want you to tell them that I was gone Thursday and Friday, and you saw Bert on Saturday. I'll make it well worth your while, end quote. Judy was very persistent about getting Mr. Cabrera over to Dorothea's house with some shovels. Mr. Cabrera is the investigator into Bert's missing persons case. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. So when he and his partner, along with Dorothea's parole officer, got to her house, when speaking to her, she just automatically went on and told him all she knew was that Bert left with a relative and she was gone to church. He asked her specifically, what exactly is this place that you're running here? She looked directly at her PO and said, Jim, I'm in violation of my parole. He had a stunned look on his face, and she eventually agreed for them to search her premises. At her home, Mr. Cabrera kept finding broken open blue capsules everywhere. He immediately recognized that this was a sleep medication that people usually take when they've had trouble sleeping. Right. <laughs> like, I'm sure he, all the cases he's probably worked, he's probably come across this. And with him having knowledge of her past crimes, things started to fall into place for the investigator. He said, oh, Dorothea, one more thing. Would you give us permission to dig in your yard? She looked puzzled and she was like, whatever for? <laughs> whatever for? And, you know, he kept his cool and he followed it up and said, well, the social worker, I just want to be able to tell her we searched everywhere and I'd like to be able to have an answer to her missing persons case. So Dorothea agreed. 
Wow. So three men on Mr. Cabrera's task force started digging in her yard. At one point, he started finding pieces of garbage around the yard, like cigarette butts or like a small piece of paper, you know, just random shit. Things like that. Gotcha. Yeah, and he looks up and he sees Dorothea standing on the balcony of the second floor watching him. Ooh, fuck. Then he started finding pieces of cloth. And as he kept pulling these pieces up and piling them off to the side, he then started to pull up what looked like beef jerky. Oh, God. Leathery pieces. Oh, fuck. Holy fuck. Yeah. Yeah, it's bad. His shovel eventually strikes something hard. And he gets down in the hole and he braces himself and yanks on the hard piece like there was a piece he was trying to get up out of the ground to reveal that it was a human femur bone. Jesus Christ. What he was pulling on was a femur bone and he could see that it was attached to the rest of the skeleton. He got out of the hole and informed his team that they've come up on human remains. The beef jerky was actually human flesh. Jesus fucking Christ. The anthropologists joined the team and they started digging in different areas of her yard. Then someone yells out to Mr. Cabrera and said, Dorothea would like to talk to you. So he walked upstairs and she came out and said, am I under arrest? All this is making me nervous and I'd like to go get a cup of coffee over at my nephew's. He asked her where it was at, and she said, right over there at the hotel around the corner. And at the time, Mr. Cabrera didn't have anything substantial, really, to arrest her for. She was letting them dig and denied even knowing that the body was there. Yeah, that's not something they could, even if, you know, them finding human remains in her yard, they couldn't immediately pin that to her. There's still a process to go through. Right. Bird had only been missing for three months at this point. And the decomposition on the body was too far gone. So he concluded this wasn't Bert and had no problem with her going to go get coffee. She came out and she was wearing a red coat and a little purse. And after he saw her go into the back of the hotel, he resumed digging where he left off. And when he lifted up more things from the dirt, there was a leg in the shovel. Oh, God, 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 God. He yelled to his commander that he got another body, and then his commander wanted to know where Dorothea was. Mr. Cabrera told him about her going to get coffee, and he took off running. He returned and said, where did you say she was? And at that time, they realized she'd taken off. I was just about to say, Dorothea Puente made like a Dairy Queen ice cream cone, and she dipped. (laughs) (laughs) bye goodbye you won't be finding me pinning me with nothing she said all right i'm out right (laughs) all right right, i'm gonna head out so police put out a bolo to all police agencies there was a nationwide manhunt for dorothea puente the fbi was involved secret service the marshal's office satellite trucks and everything to try to bring her in oh my god They continued to dig up the entire yard while they searched for her, and they eventually found Bert. He was the third body that they found. That breaks my heart. A total of seven bodies have now been recovered from Dorothea's yard. It was just one after the next after the next. The deception went so far, Mr. Cabrera noticed on her calendar in the kitchen that she had marked a date on the calendar as Bert left. As he conducted more searches in different parts of the house, he noticed how cushy the carpet was in the death room. Oh, oh no. Noticing there were actually two carpets there. He pulled back the carpets to find putrefied body fluids on the wooden floor beneath it. They found a coffee tin filled with lye, carefully labeled with permanent marker across the lid. She fled 400 miles to Los Angeles under an assumed name before she was recognized in a neighborhood bar. He called the local TV station, the guy that spotted her, and it was this tip that led officials to find Dorothea at her hotel room. 
She was then transported by jet back to Sacramento to face her crimes. They examined the seven victims. They were found in the fetal position, wrapped in plastic and blankets. Detectives from Sutter County contacted Cabrera and informed him of the John Doe they had found in 1986, and his body was like what they found in the yard. Inside the box, they found Everson Gilmas' body. He was finally identified two years after he had been killed. Ruth's children contacted John O'Mara to see if they could have their mother's case included with the now eight victims they had found killed by Dorothea's hand. The district attorney looked at Ruth's case and the similarities of the bodies found, and they did include her case, charging Puente with the murder of Ruth Monroe. Dorothea Puente was charged with nine counts of first-degree murder, premeditated as fuck. Premeditated as fuck, for sure. Which means she could get the death penalty. The nine counts included Ruth Monroe, Everson Gilmuth, Betty Palmer, Vera Faye Martin, James Gallup, Benjamin Fink, Burt Montoya, Dorothy Miller, and Leona Carpenter. Dorothea's defense claimed that she did not kill them. She cashed the checks after they had died because these people were sick. She buried them in the backyard because she couldn't call the authorities. Not only was she in violation of her parole, but... Choo! Ah, sorry, I'm allergic to bullshit. <laughs> that is nothing more than the defense just grasping at straws, just yeah. trying to do their job. Like, right. my God, that makes no fucking sense. Exactly. Dorothea Helen Puente was found guilty of the crime of first-degree murder on three counts with special circumstances. The court was deadlocked on the other six murders. The jury seemed to believe her about these people dying of natural causes... So they only sought fit to charge her with the three. She was to be imprisoned for a term of life without possibility of parole. Dorothea Puente died while in prison on March 27, 2011 at the California Department of Corrections. They said that Dorothea, 82, died of natural causes at an on-site skilled nursing facility. Have you ever worked with St. Paul's? I worked there. I did a series on elder I used to be a very good person at one time. And that concludes our two-parter on Dorothea Puente. And it's a wild fucking case, too. Like, it is wild. This woman was truly, like, one of the worst. Yeah, and I... I think the thing that got me the most was when I was watching her interrogation video, she was just, like, she was not losing her cool. She was just very calm and collected, like, I'm very, talking to you Yeah, now. like, very calculated. Yeah, very I know calculated. We've brought up this point, or I know I've brought up this point on a past episode of ours, but that phenomenon when a killer or, you know, someone that does shit like this when they can just go in and just lie and just confidently like cal- turn it off. Yeah, just yeah. turn it off and they're calm and they're cool and there's just it's chilling. It's chilling as fuck. It really is. It's like it's yeah. it's it's just fucking insane. Honestly, you did the damn thing. And now the damn thing is done. And now the damn thing is done. And honestly, like I said in part one, some of our more dedicated listeners, you may actually recognize this case as an old gem of Ray's. If you know, you know. But it was a little nostalgic to, you know, go back through this again. I mean, was it exactly fun? No. No. But it was nostalgic. Like, you did your thing. I'm glad we made it through it. I'm glad to all of you listening. If you made it this far and you tuned in with us and joined us for the ride, then hell yeah. Glad you made it. Thank you. I'm honestly just glad it's over. I never want to think about this woman again as long as I live. (laughs) So, yeah, you guys, there's not really much for us to discuss at the end of this. That was a lot. So I guess we're going to close this out. If you would like to follow me and Ray and all of our weird will, great news. You could definitely do that. You can find us on Facebook at Gore Report, a true crime podcast. On Instagram. At Gore Report Podcast. And Twitter. At Gore Report. 
And also remember <laughs> that we have an email now. If you would like to send me and Ray an email, you can do so by reaching out to us at goreportpod at gmail.com. So, yeah, you guys, this case fucking sucks. If you have Social Security benefits, please don't sign them over to anyone else. <laughs> Be wary of suspicion-casting memaws, and oh, yeah, remember that you can't fucking eat at everyone's house. That's all for tonight, guys. Bye! Bye.